Welcome to another episode of 100 on Books, a podcast about literature and society. I'm your host, Nyambura Mutanyi. I'm joined in Nairobi by Ndinda Kiyoko, a multi-award-winning writer, teacher, and editor, to speak to Disha Filio, author of the acclaimed The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Ndinda was a winner of the Miles Moland Writing Scholarship, Wasafiri New Writing Prize, and the Black Warrior Review Fiction Prize. Her work has appeared in several publications, and she's currently working on her first novel. Disha's debut short story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, won the 2021 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, the 2020-2021 Story Prize, and the 2020 LA Times Book Prize, the Outside and Bomb Award for Fast Fiction, and was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction. The collection focuses on black women, sex, and the black church, and is being adapted for television by HBO Max with Tessa Thompson executive producing. Disha is also a Kimbilio Fiction Fellow and will be the 2022-2023 John and Renee Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi. We are starting this episode at the end of the day in, in Nairobi, yes. which would be, you know, like a perfect time for four o'clock tea, which is um, yes. like a bit of a British tradition, tea. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested in food and the way it, it comes up in your in your book uh in your in your stories but also uh because from the guides the one for churches for church people and the the regular guide as Mm -hmm. i've taken to calling it their recipes and food and music are the two things that really stand out so maybe talk to us a little bit about that like why this food and music as themes in your in your story sure so i i think for the music part of it is that um the genesis for this collection is really nostalgia, nostalgia and love. You know, my love for for black people and my love in particular for the black people of that are my roots. That you know, growing up in Florida, in the South, here in the U.S., I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania now. So I don't haven't lived in the South since 1989 when I left to go to college. But my upbringing being very Southern, food culture, Southern culture, they're just intertwined. And then Black Southern culture and food culture, very much intertwined. So for me to tap into nostalgia and memory automatically means tapping into the, the music of that, of not only those times, but just you know, for me, music always, I can remember where I was when that song was important to me, or mm-hmm. I wrote to music a lot, especially in the early years of my writing career 20 years ago. So music has always just sort of been there, almost like a companion. And then there was also a period in my life when I kind of avoided certain music because it reminded me too much of my mother and my grandmother, who both died in 2005. And so that certain songs just will always conjure up my grandmother. And I was just in a place where it was like, I got to get through the day. I can't be falling <laughs> apart because I heard this song. So, you know, so I just kind of had a different relationship with music for a little while. But fortunately, I'm, I'm I've, you know, there's some healing that's happened. But the food, it, it was just organically a part of the stories and of the memories food is love and food is family and food is community. I grew up uh, in, you know, my mother's and grandmother's household. My, they raised me. And then on my dad's side, my grandmother 
was also a big cook. And the deal was like, you never, if somebody came to your house, you fed them. So you always had to cook enough because you didn't know who was going to come by. And so Sunday dinners were special. And so you definitely had a lot for Sunday, but every day, you know, food was meant to be shared and and you just didn't let people leave your house hungry. And it also meant on the other side that if you went to somebody's house, if you'd already eaten dinner, you're going to have to eat a second dinner or something because (laughs) they're going to feed you. And so that's how I was raised. And so even though, you know, I haven't lived in the South, you know, and I've lived here in Pittsburgh most of my life now, and certainly almost all of my adult life. And I'll be 50 this year, that's still a big part of who I am. And so in this pandemic, it was hard because I couldn't have people at my house. So I would cook and leave little packages at my door for people to stop by (laughs) and pick up food. But it it showed up in the stories just naturally. Mm -hmm. And I mean, sometimes I felt hungry. Um, Yes. reading those stories i'm like oh i was talking to a friend of mine and she said oh if you're having disha on ask her about the peach cobbler recipe and i'm like it's in the guide it's in the guide (laughs) yes and that in the you know and there's a story around that uh peach cobbler recipe my friend tony Perrier read my book and it hadn't come out yet and he knew i was working on these the the book discussion guides and i said you know and he's a he's a chef he's a writer but he's also a chef and he said um oh, my grandmother's recipe for peach cobbler is to die for. And, and, and peach cobbler is actually pretty simple to make. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to use your grandmother's recipe because I, I like the idea of having a story behind it. I said, but I want to make it myself first. And it is the best. Like I've made peach cobbler a number of dis- different ways and I don't know what it is about hers, but it's great. And one thing he that's optional in the recipe is some brown liquor. So if you got some dark <laughs> rum or even some whiskey, you know, you can put a, a quarter cup in there or more if you want. And it just really kind of brightens the whole thing up. I don't know what it does, but I, I, it, it, I like the way that tastes. So Tony's grandmother's recipe is, is the recipe in, in the guide. So mm-hmm. shout out to grandmothers in this house. We love grandmothers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so part of the reason I asked Ninda to join us on this on this episode is that Ninda is um, a short story writer. And this is the form in which this book comes to us. And I know Ninda has a bunch of questions. Um, okay. but, um, but I also really love witnessing writers talk to each other, ask each other questions about yes. their craft and so on. So I told Ninda to say this off screen, but over to you, Ninda. <laughs> Oh God, Tisha, it's so nice to meet you. Uh, I, I I think the genesis of this conversation is because I tweeted something about how much it felt yes. like listening to really good gossip. I, that's how, <laughs> that's how I know. Like I love, love that book when I feel like mm-hmm. I'm listening to really good gossip. There's this intimacy with the characters. Yes. You lend them these details that we mm-hmm. we we hear only when we are gossiping about people, you know. And I'm very curious yes. about, um, you've kind of spoken about this, um, but I'm curious about the freedoms you allowed yourself when you were writing this book, because there's such, when you, when you finish this book, you just feel that sense of freedom in terms of structure, sentence structure, in terms of uh, the form each story takes. Um, 
just maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Just the freedoms that you allowed yourself when you were writing it. Yeah. So, you know, in retrospect, I can look at it and say it's a book about women getting free. And so I had to exemplify that in, in my approach to it. But, you know, that's easy to say now after the fact. You know, I wasn't <laughs> thinking that specifically when I was writing it. But what I was cognizant of and have been for a really long time since my mother died in 2005 was that she wasn't free from a you know there were a lot of things that my mother dealt with in terms of having been um, sexually abused as a child having experienced sexual violence as an adult within our family experiencing colorism of my grandmother's children she was the darkest of the three and that impacted you know the trajectory of, of her life and and how she felt and and how she um um, felt about herself. And, and despite all of those things, she, there was never a moment that I didn't know that I was absolutely loved. You know, she, she was a wonderful mother. We had a very difficult relationship. We were, mm -hmm. we had a very complicated relationship and she was a very loving mother. Like all of those things can be true. And sometimes it's hard to kind of reconcile that, mm -hmm. but she died um, of breast cancer at age 52 which is so young and she died not having done things for herself that she wanted to do. She was very focused on me and also didn't, was never encouraged to pursue passions and dreams. Like that just was not something that was, that she was encouraged to do. And so when she passed away, I felt like I have to do all the things that I want to do because she empowered me to do that, whether she realized it or not, because in, in many ways, you know, she, uh, in our, in our difficult relationship, she kind of wanted me to stay close to her. And I don't think she understood that I can't do both. I can't be, you know, attached to the hip with, with you. Like in many ways, she kind of saw us as the same person, but mm -hmm. she was always very proud of me at the same time. So that was kind of her contradiction. But I knew that she wanted me to live my life. And she gave me that blessing when she was dying. You know, she recognized that she kind of wasted time on things in our relationship that really weren't important. And she kind of knew at the end of her life what was important. And she mm -hmm. said, live your life. And so I felt like she gave me permission to do what I wanted to do. And I also, having lost her at such a young age, it made me aware of my own mortality. Like none of us have time to waste being yeah. afraid of what are people going to think? And what if, you know, my mom is gone and my grandmother's gone. Like what if their friends read it and the sex and, <laughs> you know, and my kids are going to read it and what, you know, and um, I'm taking on the church and what a church, you know, I don't have the luxury or the time to worry about that. So it's almost yeah. like a freedom by default, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I was determined to do what I wanted to do it's and it was hard to have time to write while also taking care of my kids and doing everything else and so why would I take the precious time that I have and 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 write scared like if mm -hmm. I'm gonna have this time I'm gonna use it to write exactly what I want to write Yes. And so I, I wish I could say that I was just badass, but I'm not. 
<laughs> I mean, that's all I was saying the whole time when I was reading God, how badass, you know? Like, each, each story is taking its own form. And it's it's mm-hmm. it's not your traditional, I hate that word, traditional short story. Yeah. But each story is taking its own freedoms. And I really love that about the book. Thank um, you. Yeah. And that thing about form was something that really stood out to me. That diary entries, these unepistolary um, segment, their lists. <laughs> I love a good list. Like please inject that stuff into into my oh. mind. And so every, I mean, I, I, I've been saying this to everybody who listened to me and you mm-hmm. people know I have a thread on Twitter that's dedicated to this book, but everyone is a banger. You know, it's like going to a club and the DJ just keeps putting everyone. on music, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, that's the, the way you played with form was, was really interesting. And so much so that I, you know, I think I told you this. I asked, I, I sent my mother how to make love to a physicist. Oh. Um, uh, and <laughs> and in the middle of her reading, I asked her, "What do you think?" She's like, "You need to keep quiet so I can finish this." Story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I was like, "I'm sorry, mom. I, I will be quiet." You know. Um, and so the mothers love it. <laughs> I love hearing that <laughs> the mothers and daughters, you know, have come together around this book and. And I, I love hearing that from readers and I've heard from daughters who have shared things with their mothers using the book as a, as a, a springboard. And, and then the mothers have done the same thing and, and sharing with their daughters, you know, things that they've experienced that they never talked about before. And that's what I really hope that the book would, people would feel seen and heard and that it would spark conversations that I think are long overdue about so much not so much the church itself, because sometimes even if we leave the church, we carry the, you know, the, the things that don't serve us with us. And somebody introduced me to the phrase church hurt. Um, and it is often from the church that the, these hurtful teachings and experiences come. But if we're being honest, the, the conduit, sometimes it's our mothers, you know, who are the, you know, the bridge between us and those teachings and then that means that our mothers also have the same kind of power to help in the healing. And we don't have to reject the church or our mothers unless we just, you know, feel like we need to. But um, but we can have these hard conversations. And, and I love hearing that. And also just the celebration, just saying, I love this story, you know, and, and I want to share this, this with you. And, um, you know, I can't do that with my own mom. And so I love hearing that you could do that with your mom. Um. And I think I also recently watched an IG live where you were talking to uh, a psychologist, I'm going to say a yes. therapist, and mm-hmm. my mother lost her mother when she was younger than I am now, and mm. that, that's um, that's a thing that really resonated as I was watching it, and as I've read your interviews where you talk about this, like, there is something about losing your mother, in my case, your grandmother, that alters you in some way, yes. and, and so there's also there's a way in which um, stories give us a way to connect, but also in a sense to, to, to heal uh, or to, yes. or to you know, be able to, at the very least, start the process of processing things. So that's really mm-hmm. powerful. I don't know if, if it's clear. I am a fan girl. Oh, I'm here to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I am a huge fan. That's it. That's I appreciate it so much. <laughs> She's my foil. I'm her foil. We're each other's foil. <laughs> You're nice, 
combination complement each other. <laughs> you know, you, you spoke about church, and I think one of the things that I love about this book is just how, I mean, it's called The Secret Life of Church Ladies. But I'm interested mm-hmm. in the, the church as that space that the container that holds the lives of these people together, you know, and I'm just mm-hmm. interested in how, like, if you could talk a little bit about how the church breathes life into these characters' experiences and, you know, yes. what does it lend them? And I'm also very interested in your own experience in church, you know, if that is something that informed the stories. Absolutely. Um, I, growing up, I can't remember a time when I didn't go to church from as young as I can remember. But the interesting thing, and I've kind of unpacked this lately since I've been, you know, on this book tour, um, because I didn't really think a whole lot about it, was that my mother and my grandmother sent me to church but they didn't go to church themselves until I was in college. And I remember as a kid being curious about that. And I asked my grandmother once and she kind of mumbled this answer about, you know, how she go to church when she, you know, got herself right or got herself together. And even as a kid, I remember thinking, but don't you go to church to get yourself together? Like I thought that was the whole point. And so for some reason, you know, for many years in my head, it was like, for some reason, they don't feel welcome at church and yet they're sending me. And then I just kind of accepted it as just a a part of life. And then now having written this book and being asked this question or some form of this question many times, it finally kind of crystallized for me. My grandfather, my mother's father, his parents and grandparents um, or like father and grandfather they built the church, the first church that I went to. Like literally they were the carpenters and the bricklayers that built this church. So he was a church man and he had two children with my grandmother and they weren't married. And my grandmother had had, had an older son um, before she had my mother and, and my uncle. So my grandmother had three children with two men and she wasn't married. And then my mother had me when she was 18 and she wasn't married and it's like light bulb. They, they felt ashamed. They felt like they couldn't go to church because they had done this wrong thing. And yet they didn't reject the church's views about that because they sent me. So it was almost like, there's no hope for us, you know? And again, they never said these things to me. I'm kind of piecing it together now, you know, you solve the mystery of your parents after they're gone. Um, But they felt that, the church was still important so that I needed to be there. And man, I wish they were here now that I could ask them about that um, because I didn't have the language or the understanding, you know, until just until recently that I pieced that together, Um, which it seems so obvious now, (laughs) you know, but, but (laughs) I never thought of it as them being ashamed or whatever, because one thing is that, I was never taught to be ashamed that my parents weren't married. Now I learned to be ashamed because the larger culture said that, you know, your parents should be married and they should live together and all of these things. And I didn't like that. My family wasn't like, you know, the families on TV. Um, but I was never taught shame. And in my household, again, I was only taught that I was wonderful and, and that I was loved. Um, but because I was always in church, um, I was fascinated by the women from how they walked to how they dress 
And then, you know, that was the church women. And then there were the women outside of the church. And I was fascinated by them too, how they walked and how they dressed. And then these rules that said, you know, to be good, a good girl or a good woman, you had to do these things and not these things. And, and then, you know, um, as I became a a pre-adolescent and then an adolescent, I had to start figuring out, well, well, what kind of woman am I going to be? And you're not supposed to have sex or like sex or something. I'm not quite sure here, but then my hormones are saying this other thing. So I'm looking at these women and I'm wondering like, well, do they like sex? Do they clearly have sex because they have children? Do they masturbate? Do they, you know, what are their secrets? You know, so even as a, a teenager, like I was very curious about those women. And then the women outside of the church, it's like, well, they, I like the fact that they're wearing jeans and heels and, you know, I like how they dress and they seem like they're having more fun. But the church said they're going to hell. I don't go to hell, but I want to have fun and wear jeans. So like, you know, kids, we think we're like black and white thinkers. And right. so I, I was just stumped by how to reconcile what were my options? You know, I've always looked at black women to kind of figure out like, who can I be? Um, and that stayed with me, you know, and I, I tried to be a good girl as much, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't, but you know, um, <laughs> but I did, I got married young and I got, and I had kids and then there I was, you know, 20 years ago when I started writing, I wasn't happy. It was like, I followed all the rules. Now what, you know? Yeah. Um, and the church and, and so the, and then to get back to your question, um, the church is obsessed with sex. And so that's why, you know, if you're going to talk about black women in the church, sex is right there because so many yeah. of the rules co- trying to control women's behavior, um, it, they, the rules are all about sex because that's the church's obsession. Um, and like, how do we navigate that? And that's where, um, where the stories come from, just how different imagining how different women navigate these situations. Yeah, and you 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 spoke about uh, just the the way church women dressed and just all these details that you borrowed mm-hmm. from that space. And I think the other thing that stood out for me was the voice in these stories. They're all in most of them in first person mm-hmm. uh, point of view. And um, mm-hmm. I, I even now, I, every time I think about a character, I can differentiate her from the other character in the other stories, you know, they're all so unique mm-hmm. to me. Um, and I wonder if that's also something that you borrowed from the church or if these voices are coming from uh, people in your family or, you know, how do you get the voice so right? Yeah. And how do you also keep, did you have to write the stories maybe months apart to make sure they don't, don't all sound the same? Because I feel like mm-hmm. it's so difficult to get um, very voicey stories, right? Especially when they're in one collection, you know? Mm-hmm. So how do you make sure they don't sound the same? Like every yeah. story doesn't sound, for example, like your grandmother or this, you know? I'm, I'm very curious about that. Right. <laughs> so voicey is one of my favorite words. So I love that you <laughs> use the word voicey. And honestly, I, I did think that all of the older women sounded like my grandmother because that's the voice uh, <laughs> I mean, and I think that it differentiates for a number of reasons. One mm-hmm. is like Granny in Jael. She sounds like my grandmother, but my grandmother, because she didn't go to church, she wasn't quoting scripture though. Mm-hmm. So I was able to take the the voices of the women from church and the way they would qu- quote scripture and the scriptures they would quote and kind of blend that with my grandmother and the way she talked 
to her friends mm. about, you know, so-and-so in the neighborhood and what they're up to. And, you know, the, the, I'm not judging, but they totally are judging, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, and having a, um, an opinion about everybody's business, yeah. you know, um, that was definitely from my grandmother and her friends. And then, you know, I have been in so many sermons and Bible studies and, and, and Sunday schools that those scriptures, even though I haven't been in church for nearly 15 years, they still live in my head. Like I, yeah. I can tell you if somebody mentions a certain situation that, a, you know, a black um, church lady is going to say such and such, you know, because I, I grew up hearing it. So that was part of it. It's just, there was no one voice or person that I was trying to, you know, convey. It was a chorus of voices, you know, that would kind of converge mm-hmm. within a character. And then um, in terms of time distance, these stories were written over a period of years sometimes. You know, I might start something and then not come back to it for a year or two. You know, it might have just been a line or instructions for married Christian husbands. I wrote like 10 or 15 pages of that as a traditional narrative, came back to it. I don't know, like six months to a year later and decided that I didn't want I didn't have anything really to say about an affair that hadn't already been said. And so I wanted to do something a little disruptive and turn the narrative kind of inside out so that this woman who's the mistress instead of her being the literally the side chick and marginalized she's at the center she's making the rules and so because of her position that drove her voice she has she speaks with yeah. authority she speaks unapologetically she speaks with confidence but then there's this vulnerability that comes in because as i was writing her i realized she was olivia from peach cobbler Cause I was getting to that part where she says, you know, yeah. when he, when she says about me, you know, I have a bakery da da da. da. I own, I, I make the best peach cobbler in town. And I was, and I discovered that I was like, it's Olivia. I realized, I guess I hadn't let her go. And I was like, okay, this could work. Let's. And, and so there's a little bit of vulnerability where she's like, I, I, I said, I wasn't going to be like my mother, but here I am, you know, eating the crumbs off another woman's table. Um, so sometimes it was a process of discovery, you know, that would happen. And then in Dear Sister, you know, there are these four voices and I have four half sisters and we had a similar thing where, um, our one sister didn't, we didn't know her growing up, Mm. but when she, when our father died, our step grandmother said, you guys need to tell her, you know, she should know. Even if she doesn't have a relationship with him, she should know. And so we picked up the phone and called this poor woman like, hey, we're sisters. Don't do that to anybody. That's not a good idea. And so I, the story was like, okay, if instead of doing that, we had written a letter, which is what you should do. But also if the four of us who did know about each other growing up, if we were actually close So I was raised close with one of my sisters. Our mothers made sure that we were always together. And then two of Mm -hmm. our sisters, they have the same mother and same father. And we knew about each other, but we didn't grow up together. And we didn't connect until our father died. So I kind of imagined the relationships I wish we'd had, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so those women are 
all the women that I grew up with, you know, and I spent a lot of time as a kid sitting around listening to grown folks conversations. I learned that as long as I kept my mouth shut, that I could hear a lot of stuff. And, and, and then when I became an, a woman, you know, and I would go back to the South and I went back when my father died and I spent time with my sisters for the, for the first, the, all of the sisters for the first time. And, you know, we would sit around and talk. You know, and, and I would never take my sisters and make them a character, you know, so none of my sisters are looking at that and saying, oh, that's me, because I would never violate their privacy. Plus, it's more fun to imagine people being like, there's no real Tashida, but how fun is she? Right. So I got to imagine right? a character yeah. <laughs> that is just off the chain completely, you know, and then make the sister Renee be her foil, her opposite and create, you know, that yeah. kind of conflict. Um, and then have the one sister who's like the peacemaker, you know, cause every family needs that. And then the sister who's writing the letter, she's the scribe and she's kind of got opinions, you know, about everybody. So that was, you know, just fun to take the kind of skeleton of my real life and then put all this meat on it and make it, you know, way more interesting. My one sister is a nurse. And so I gave that occupation to Tashida just as a nod to my sister, but she's nothing like Tashida. My sisters have read it and they like the story and, you know, nobody's upset or anything like that. So I think this is something that stood out to me as I read the stories. I felt like women were making and remaking themselves throughout these stories. And I I always love women remaking themselves because Mm -hmm. in a lot of societies, there's no room for women to be anything other than mother, daughter, wife, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, those, those socially constructed roles and for Mm -hmm. women to be like, "Mm, yeah, okay, I'm I'm going to move in this direction. That was really refreshing. And that actually is a, question I had for you which was that um, some of those women are queer women and Mm -hmm. some of them have not come into their queerness in the traditional sense of maybe having come out or having maybe Mm -hmm. had their first um, like relationship or any of those things Mm -hmm. but I'm I'm very interested in this question for you and Dinda because Mm -hmm. both of you have written stories with queer characters how Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm asking this because it's Pride Month. But um, how yeah. do you <laughs> how do you access these characters so mm-hmm. well? Because they're not we're not reading the same queer woman again and again and again. Right. Um, right. So how 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 are you able to access that? So um, it for me, it's coming organically out of the church. As I was saying, if you're going to talk about the church, and you're going to talk about black women. You got to talk about sex and you got to talk about queer sex because that's one of the things that the church tries so hard to suppress and to demonize. And so I would not have considered this collection genuine or complete if there weren't queer women or women grappling with their, their, their sexual identity because it would have been a kind of erasure that the church is doing. And so I I didn't want to replicate that harm because the church erases women and, you know, erases us as sexual beings in so many ways, but specifically queer women, even to the point where, you know, at least in, in, in the U S and in, in the black churches here and many of the evangelical churches, it's almost like a don't ask, don't tell for queer men. You know, you can have a queer um, choir director or a queer musician And, um, but just don't talk about it and don't, you know, it's just understood sort of thing. 
there's not a, a comparable um, freedom, if you can call that freedom, because it's not really, but even that limited freedom, you know, queer women don't always have in the traditional church. Of course, there are churches where, you know, that are, are far more progressive, but in the churches that I grew up in, and even just even in the communities outside of the church, it was, you know, queer men certainly could experience violence and, and, and ridicule and all of those things. But I remember people laughing at queer men as, you know, an oddity or entertainment, but queer women, I mean, the words even were so ugly, you know, to describe them. And, and so as a child, I even picked up on, on that difference. And so organically out of that repression came these ideas and these stories. And so in my mind, thinking about Eula in particular, if you are told that having sex with a man, and it's assumed that's the only, as a woman, that's the only person you're going to have sex with is wrong if you're not married and so forth. And you're not even supposed to be alone with men who, you know, don't be tempted and all of these things. Who are you spending your time with? Women, other women. And, and we have this need for intimacy and it has to happen. You know, it has to, it just absolutely has to. And so I wanted to take on a, a look at a story where for two women, it happened very organically and they continue to explore their sexuality with each other, but in a way that the church, I think, creates these weird contortions that we do that like, well, if we only do it once a year, then it's not so bad. You know, like there's the, just the logic of the, you know, the, the kind of the ways that this church kind of stunts us, right? If we can, if we, if we pray before, and I, I know this from people who are queer and not queer, but trying to be good Christians, if we pray before and or after we have this illicit sex, <laughs> you know, it's okay. And so there's a lot of kind of rulemaking and bargaining that people do to try and get their needs met, but also make sure that God's not mad at them, you know? And so I just sort of imagined a scenario that would sort of carry these women through because I thought a lot about the women in the churches I grew up in who never married or who became widowed. And the understanding and assumption was that they just never had sex again. And I thought, how devastating would that be? Um, and so that, you know, from the story that that's something that the characters grapple with. And then also in Jael, where, you know, she has feelings for, or she's crushing on the pastor's wife pretty openly in her journal, but the feelings that she has for her friend, who's the same age, she doesn't even really, can't even articulate in her journal. It's so, you know, she has to kind of hide it. And I think many of us as girls, again, you know, who are we spending our time with? Other girls. And, you know, our explorations and our curiosities, you know, whether we become queer as adult women or not, there is that time in our, in our youth where, you know, we are curious about our bodies and our friends' bodies, and we are looking at women and falling in love with them, you know? And so I, I wanted that vulnerability and that tenderness for Gile, and she had a one safe space where she could explore that in her journal. And her grandmother violated that. And I think that that's the experience that, you know, you might hear a lot of church women saying about the time they got caught, you know, being sexually um, explorative with, you know, another girl. 
Um, I'm thinking about my friend Kalisa Ray, who has a wonderful poem in her collection, Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat is the name of the collection. And I forget the name of the poem about her mother walking in on her and a friend when she was 12 and they were, you know, exploring sexually. And those can be really traumatic moments for, for some of us. So I was thinking of those things and then wanting to explore that, but in a broader world so that the story is about more than that. But that's one of the things that the characters are grappling with. And then I think about both Jael and also in Eula, those characters, would they even use the word queer? You know, like that's our word for it. But, you know, so I wanted to think a bit about labels, you know, even in Eula, would Caroletta label herself as queer, define herself as queer or bi or whatever? Or would she just say, I love Eula, you know? I wanted to raise those kinds of questions. I love that. I I I really love that. And um, one of the interesting things, even though you write about this devastating um, reality of, you know, we can call them queer, but I love the question of like, can, are they calling themselves queer? But it's devastating experiences. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask why you decided to lend them humor, because even though I feel the devastation at the heart of this moment, I still am laughing. You know, mm-hmm. they're making me laugh. The experience is, you know, it's funny, <laughs> but it is not funny. <laughs> and I'm just, is it, is yeah. it like, why do we decide to lend the piece or just maybe talk to me about humor as a writing yeah. you know, device? I think it comes, I mean, I think just as a tradition and and, and for Black American culture, the joy and humor, joy and humor have been resistance for us. And they have always lived alongside, you know, trauma and tragedy. And and I think that's a telltale sign when people who are not us, who are, you know, when white people try and tell our stories, they get the trauma and the tragedy and the pathos and all of that. But one thing they cannot replicate is our humor. And they can't, <laughs> they can't do the, 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 the sorcery that we do of having that yeah. tragedy and that, that cackling laughter on the same page or on the same, you know, in the same moment on the screen. We can do that organically because we've, We've, yeah. we've adapted. I mean, that, that's, that's been how we've survived. So that's part of it for me. And I, I just have had the, the benefit of knowing some really funny people in my life, you know, and I always joke, but it's really true. When I got divorced the first time, I got a sense of humor that I didn't have before. I don't know what happened. But like, you know, it was something emerged and it was a tough year because the year I separated from my husband was the same year my mother, my father and my grandmother all died in 2005. That was a horrendous year. But at the same time, I think some of it I got from my mother because she was in hospice for six weeks before she died. And obviously it was the saddest time in my life, but we laughed so much. My mother was hysterical um, on her deathbed. You know, she just had, you know, she would say whatever she wanted to say, <laughs> you know, she was like, what the hell are you going to mince words now? I'm dying, you know? And um, <laughs> she, uh, I asked her one day, like, you know, if she wanted anything, if there was anything I could get her. And I thought she was going to say like, you know, some macaroni and cheese or something. And she was like, can I have a party? And and we threw a party in hospice and a hundred people came. And 
as as you know like two weeks before she died and she, you know and she was just joking right up to the the very end and had so much peace and so I'd love to think that you know that's something else another gift she gave me and and it shows up in in the stories and and which which writers are you looking um which writers are you looking up to uh, as you write? Who are the people you're engaged with, people you're in conversation with? Uh, I, I was thinking yeah. about Toni Morrison because when I was reading this, I was oh. thinking about how Toni Morrison makes me laugh in the way you've made me laugh while reading this collection. Uh, but Thank I'm just curious you. about those people, yeah. You know, just the unapologetic blackness of Toni Morrison's stories and, and James Baldwin's stories, absolutely. And also the way that Toni Morrison writes unapologetic Black women. Sula is my favorite book. I mean, I love all of her books, but Sula is definitely my favorite. And, you know, in Sula, she does that. In, she has the intergenerational relationships, you know, the mothers and daughters, and that's there. And, you know, sleeping with the best friend's husband, that, you know, that messiness <laughs> that we were talking about earlier, that gossip, <laughs> you know, the gossip fodder. But also people like J. California Cooper, you know, just the way that mm-hmm. she wrote the intimacy of, of Black women's lives and Tony K. Bambara and Gloria Naylor and, you know, centering Black women in our own stories, which shouldn't sound surprising or new or radical, but here we are, you know, but they, they all of them yeah, have been a, a blueprint and yeah. all of them, I, you know, just go back to time and time again and and um, and whenever people have mentioned my stories in the same you know voice with their work is just a tremendous honor. Linda, which which writers do you keep going back to? This is my picture. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think Toni Morrison is the person I read a lot when I'm feeling, especially when I'm feeling completely stuck. Toni Morrison, I read Toni Morrison a lot. I read Toni K. Bambara a lot. Um, somebody I'm completely obsessed with right now is Kathleen Collins. I don't know if you guys yes. have uh, read her collection. Whatever happened I, to Interracial yeah. Love? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with um, that particular collection. But I feel like that... The, the people I read, that is constantly changing, but there are three people who are always at the center, and Toni Morrison never moves. Toni Morrison is always there at the center. I feel like she's my literary mother forever. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's a good bomb to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because... Uh, you know, there's no better way for us to wind up than to talk about what comes yes. next. There are so many questions we'd still love to ask. There are so many things. I mean, I'm, I'm going to hold back from sending a follow-up email that's like, please ask Disha this 100 questions. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I know you have something in the works with Tessa mm-hmm. Thompson, but maybe you could tell us about that and w- whatever else you have got. Yes. This is also a question from Dinda, who's smiling to my side. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you can go first, Disha. So um, with Tessa Thompson, um, I have a, a deal with HBO Max and Tessa's production company, to adapt my book for television. And um, I'll be writing and um, executive producing along with Tessa. 
Um, and the idea is not an anthology, which is like, you know, would be like nine different episodes with, you know, for the nine stories, but building a world that brings characters and situations from each of the nine stories together into a singular uh, world. I guess I've already used that word. And pulling things from what happened in the book as we read it, and then sort of looking back in some ways of who were these characters before the story, you know, who were they when they were younger, and also looking ahead, who were some of the younger characters, who did they become when they got older? Um, it's also an opportunity to look at uh, characters that we didn't get to know as well, like Olivia's mother in Peach Cobbler. Like, you know, lots of people have questions. Why was she like that? You know, and so this is an opportunity to explore some of that. And I'm also working on a novel, which I Ooh, yay. am going to, I'm hoping, I'm trying to make it um, satirical. And I'm really inspired by books like The Sellout by Paul Beatty, by um, The World Doesn't Require You by Rian Amokar Scott by the heads of the color pe colored people by Nafisa Thompson Spires, um, Fran Ross's book, Oreo. And I've not written, I've written, I wrote in the, during the pandemic, I wrote a short story that was satirical, but this is my first attempt at a long, first of all, my first novel, because I've been trying to write this novel since 2007, but definitely my first attempt at satire so fingers crossed <laughs> oh i'm so excited i'm so excited i can't wait to read more Thank of your you. work um i don't know you I, <laughs> you asked me what i'm writing what i'm working on i'm working on a novel as oh. you know which has been in the works for i don't know so listen long. <laughs> like i said mine started in 2007 I'm so, tired so it keep going <laughs> Well, I feel very inspired by this journey. I, 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 I feel very inspired by your journey. So I'm going to keep going. And I've heard that when you feel like you want to give up, that's when you should yeah. keep going because that is a good sign. So I'm there. I'm also working on a collection of mm -hmm. um, essays. I'm trying nonfiction uh, because... I am discovering a lot of secrets about mm. my family when I'm in my thirties, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm very interested in exploring all of the secrets I'm finding out. A lot of very important details of my life because I'm I think I'm meeting myself for, ah. for the first time in my thirties. Yeah. Uh, in a way, other people knew me, and you know I want to explore memory and secrets, and let's see what happens. I don't know how that how long that's going to take, but I'm. I'm having a good time thinking about that and just journaling about that. So that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you all the best with that. And I look forward to reading um, both the novel and the essay collection. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for joining us. And because of the little thing you told me before we started recording, I'm going to ask you to say goodbye to the people in the language that we speak in this part oh. of the world. Kwaheri tuto anana. Asante sana kwa kutunga na kwaheri. Enjoy the rest of your day, Nisha. Asante sana. Thank you for joining us for season two, episode three of 100 on Books. 
It is made by Semabox as part of the Dada Podcast Incubator, the first podcasting incubator focused on women and NB folks in the world. It's produced and edited in Nairobi by Doris Onyango and Dana Seda at Semabox Baraza Media Lab. You can find previous episodes, transcripts, and links to various resources at anchor.fm forward slash 100 on books or wherever you find podcasts. Please subscribe and share with fellow bookish people and connect with me wherever you like to discuss literature. You can find 100 on books on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, on WordPress and via email, 100onbooks at gmail.com. If you're inclined to send snail mail, you can find my address and links to my social media in the show notes. Mm-hmm.